everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk to you about things that you should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about how our cats are assholes and our house is haunted. Yeah, this week has been a week, my friends. On Tuesday, I got home from a morning walk and discovered blood all over the floor of my home office. I had been in a meeting, and I had heard the cats get into a little fight, but I assumed it was nothing. But then she says, um, Austin, um, are you in a meeting? Yeah. Oh, well, there's blood all over the floor. (laughs) So we checked them out and figured out it was Fezzik, our most frequent guest with the very loud purr. And he had been bitten on the tail by Draco, our second most frequent guest. So we got him cleaned up, took him to the vet, and he's home. He's fine. It was actually just a tiny bite. Turns out they bleed kind of like human head wounds when they're on the tail. But then today, today, Gigi had a mat on her butt and Austin thought it looked a little weird. So he clipped it off and underneath it was an abscess. And we don't know if it was a bite. We don't know what happened there. So she gets to go to the vet tomorrow. And they're probably going to shave her butt. Poor thing. She has a severe anxiety disorder. So we're anticipating it being triggered by this. And we're considering taking Draco into the vet too, just to see what's going on with him and why he suddenly decided to start biting cats. He's always had a little bit of arthritis problems, but I think they just might have gotten worse and he's just hiding it because he's a cat. Yeah, but even when we like poke him where we know the arthritis is, it's not reacting. So who knows? And then this morning... (laughs) Again, we had a little bit of a creepy thing happen. So we've told you all about our bedroom and the light chain that like twisted around itself and the doppelgangers we see walking in there and the chain lock remnants on the outside of the door and the possible bars on the windows. Well, I went into my photos first thing this morning to take a pic to look at a picture I had taken of the cats last night because they took up my entire side of the bed to the point where I had to squeeze into Austin's side. And that was not the first photo that popped up. At 4.01 this morning, a photo had been taken. We were both asleep, and there was no way I could have rolled over onto my camera because of the way I was having to, like, sleep wedged in. And it was, like, this color that's not even in the bedroom, and it had a black fucking crucifix in it. Yeah. We don't have a crucifix in that room for sure, and probably not anywhere in the house. If we have one in the house, it's not on purpose. Yeah. So we don't have any idea how this photo could have been taken, who could have taken it, or why. I like to think that Bigfoot snuck in last night. (laughs) But I locked the door. Did you give him a key? Bigfoot always has a key. He is always welcome in this house. But if he's like taking photos of us sleeping, he might not be welcome anymore. I'll I'll talk to him. Yeah, that's not cool, Bigfoot. That's not cool. So yeah, that was what we got to wake up to this morning, was finding a creepy-ass photo taken by my phone in our room with a a rather, what's the word I'm looking for? Foreboding? It is very foreboding. Yeah, and the weird thing is, there's still no energy in this house. Mm -hmm. Like, I've lived in haunted houses before, there's always some kind of energy. There is no energy in this house. I mean, this is the most boring suburb in the most boring state, so maybe there's just no energy. Hey, things aren't boring around here. We've got people dying by the hundreds. Yay! Yeah, our neighboring counties have started issuing mask orders. We have not. And in fact, our county uh, 
put out a Facebook message saying, thanks for being so diligent with wearing the masks. That's why we're not putting out a mask ordinance. Yeah, we've got over like, we've got a lot of new cases every single day. I think the neighboring counties are putting the mask ordinances to protect themselves from us. I'm like, what, 40% of the cases in our state are coming from our county? Yes. And we are nowhere near 40% of the population. No, no, we are a relatively large county, but we are not 40% of the state. No. So that's been kind of the week, other than, of course, Trump tweeting out a literal white power message and... Oh, the world continues to go insane. Everything is awful, but that's okay because we're here to talk about stuff that happened long ago or not long ago or might not have happened at all. (laughs) Is your stuff awful? Because my stuff's actually not awful this week. I mean, mine does have a genocide. Well, it's been a while since we've had a true genocide. I mean, we had one last week. Did I just forget what you were talking about? Nutmeg? Was that a genocide? So it, was a, it was literally a genocide. Oh, it was a genocide. Yeah. Genocide of the nutmeg trees. No, oh, the, no, the people that they all that they killed. Like like 80% of that island's population That's is gone. True. I don't listen when you talk. You know this. It's, it's a problem. It's why you don't know about the pool in our backyard. We actually do need to set up our pool. We have a, a inflatable pool that we would love to set up. It's an adult-sized inflatable pool, and it's very neat, but we would also have to go get an air pump. I mean, I can order one that'll fit off my my drill battery. Oh, okay. I'm sure you're all very excited to hear about this. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, let's do some more errands. Um, let's set up a shopping list. Um, I noticed we're low on fennel. <laughs> no, we are not allowed to have fennel in this house. Not this argument again. We will have fennel. I will start, like, pouring the fennel into your mouth while you sleep until you hate it as much as I do. How? It's a solid. You can't, I guess you could chop it up really finely. Well, most fennel, it's, like, chopped up already if you're going to use it in seasoning. Okay. So I'm going to talk about something this week that we, that at least I learned a lot of in school because I took Latin class, mm-hmm. but most people really don't learn a lot about it, even though we named a month after the guy. Okay. I'm going to talk about Julius Caesar. All right. I learned about him predominantly through English class when we did Julius Caesar the play, which is actually in my top three favorite Shakespeare's. And it's it's accurate-ish. He took artistic license because, you know, it's a play. Mm-hmm. But, like, he followed very closely, like, what Plutarch wrote about the assassination of Julius Caesar. And really, that's, like, most of what we learned is we learned about what happened when he crossed the Rubicon and started that whole civil war and then how he died. But we don't really learn anything beyond that even in latin class which is all about roman crap (laughs) all right so let's hear about him let's hear about julius caesar so first things first i'm the realist i'm the realist and also julius caesar was not born via c-section interesting yeah we are all taught that he was the first he was the first confirmed c-section he was not um, we know this because his mother was alive. Okay. And they would only do that in that time in cases where the mother had already died or was dying to save the child. And in those cases, because, you know, there wasn't really surgery back then, uh, you weren't going to live through having your organs pulled out. So do you think we should instead call them Macduffian sections? Lay on Macduff. So I guess Julius, uh, if you're keeping Shakespeare track, Julius Caesar could not have killed Macbeth. What? He was oh, born. yes, yes. Yeah, uh, we they think it's called a cesarean section because it probably comes from the Latin word of catere, meaning for, for cut, and the operation was, was called caesones. Okay. So, yeah, that's probably why they call it a cesarean section. Just got bastardized over time. We love to create legends around historical figures. Yeah. And now that that one part of his birth is taken care of, we also don't know his exact birth date. Probably July 12th or 13th. Uh, 100 BCE, we don't know for sure. Okay. 
his family was actually pretty well off. It wasn't like a rags to riches stories. And they claimed that they were all descendants of Venus. <laughs> but it didn't. they didn't really hold any major political power. And even though they were rich, they weren't like Bezos rich. They were just like normal rich person rich. Very few people are Bezos rich. Yeah. It's, you could argue that uh, Crassus, one of his contemporaries, was Bezos rich. Was he as poor in ethics and morality as Bezos? Yeah, he um, became the governor of Syria and tried to invade and got an entire army slaughtered by the Parnathians. Cool. So Bezos has a long, illustrious history to follow. Of rich assholes. Perfect. And he did all the usual, like, rich Roman politician crap in his life. Um, Got married at 16 to Cornelia. But it pissed off the uh, the dictator at the time, and they were ordered to. He was ordered to divorce or die. So he joined the military so he could flee to Asia while things calmed down. Eventually, his mother, who was alive because he he wasn't born via C-section, <laughs> calmed him down. And after uh, he stepped down from power, Julius Caesar came back to Rome and like started doing stuff again. He became a lawyer of sorts and uh, was the high priest of Jupiter for a little bit, like the planet. Yes, the high priest of the planet. <laughs> So he has Jupiter and uh, Dr. Manhattan has Mars. Yes. Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan. It's like he didn't go to, I guess, medical school. I don't remember what he was a doctor of. I think it was physics. (laughs) We've also been watching Watchmen. It's really good. Yeah. This is one of my favorite stories about him that I did not learn about until I was researching stuff for this podcast and found other things. When he was 25, he sailed to Rhodes to learn oration under uh, Molon, uh, a famous orator at the time, and he got captured by pirates, according to Plutarch. (laughs) He got captured by pirates, and they held him for ransom. Uh, They demanded 20 talents of silver, which is about $400,000 worth of silver in today money. Okay. Caesar laughed and said they should ask for 50 talents of silver, and that asking for 20 for him was an insult. (laughs) That's some arrogance right there. It gets He would... Um, so he sent off some of his like servants to go collect this money to pay his ransom, and he stayed there with a couple of friends while he was being held hostage. Uh, they treated him fairly well. He was around to around the island, and they kind of liked him, even though he would berate them, yell at them, uh, demand that they stop doing stuff while he was trying to sleep. <laughs> he uh, would like treat them like his subordinates. <laughs> And he spent a lot of his time just writing poetry, practicing speeches, usually with the pirates, like, and um, he even played games with his captors. Mm -hmm. He also kept telling them that once his ransom was paid, he was going to come back and crucify all of them. Maybe the photo this morning was taken by Julius Caesar. Maybe. They still liked him and thought he was joking. Uh, Caesar was not joking. After he'd been held hostage for 38 days, they paid off his 50 talent ransom. So then he was released. He went back, he raised a fleet, came back to the pirate island, and he took them all, he took all of their possessions, took back his 50 talents of silver, and arrested them all and handed over to the Roman authorities. He then went to petition to the proconsul of Asia to have them crucified. Okay. The proconsul refused, saying he, would re- he just wanted to sell them as slaves instead. Sure. Caesar didn't like that, so he just went back to the prison they were at and had them all crucified under his own authority. What authority did he have at this point? He is a rich white male. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, he had uh, all of these pirates crucified. He kept his promise. Were the Romans white? They're Italian. Huh. So yeah, I, just never, I never contemplated what like ancient Romans would have looked like. Yeah. We always assume white because, you know, we learn about him through Shakespeare when everybody except for Othello and their plays were white. So yeah. 
That's true. They were. It's like I wonder if they even you know, Cleopatra. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like I wonder if ancient Romans were white in the sense that we're thinking of as modern. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, all of the, I mean, I look at their statues. They are like marble white. I'll, I'll Actually, though, did you know that a they lot painted them? they painted them yeah. and the. Tun- not tunics, the togas and things like that were actually likely very brightly colored, and we just assume they were white because of the statues. Huh. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, he kept doing his usual political stuff and gaining power and gaining power and, you know, being an ambitious Roman guy who eventually got to a position of great power when he became the governor of a part of Gaul, uh, which was northern Italy, parts of France, and like the Alps, Transalpine mm-hmm. Gaul. Okay. He would use this position to uh, end the army that came with it to gain a ton of wealth and authority. Um, he started out by sending his legions out into Gaul, just like, you know, to scout and like, you know, secure alliances with other tribes. But it resulted in a tribe um, taking some of his diplomats hostage and killing them and demanding their own hostages. Rome didn't take too well to that. No. So he came up and he slaughtered them pretty brutally. Then as like, you know, things went on, he kept a tighter stranglehold on Gaul. And it got to the point where... All of the Gaulish chieftains decided we are going to unite against Rome. And uh, that winter, while his armies were camping and spread out, because like you know, it's hard to feed an entire army, especially back then. So they're out with all these other, in all these other parts of Gaul, which is modern day France. And uh, one of a, uh, I think it was five cohorts or like about half of a legion got tricked into an ambush and were slaughtered by the Gauls. And another was besieged by them and. Caesar basically had to scramble around and try to send out a rescue force for all these guys. He managed to do that and rescue them, and it it was fine. And then he started cracking down even more, which led to a bigger revolution and led to even more slaughter. And this is actually one of his cooler battles. I know we don't talk a lot about war stuff because you always learn all the war stuff, but I didn't learn this one. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was pursuing a large Gaul army, and they retreated into a fortress. They outnumbered him. So when he, and when he besieged them, he built a wall around their fortress so he could attack them and besiege them from behind a wall. Wait, so he built a wall like while they were actively attacking him? No, they were uh, they were they were in their own like castle. Okay. So he built a wall around their castle that he could attack them from. So if they had to, if they tried to come out of the castle, they'd have to attack the Roman wall. But why didn't they stop them while they were building the wall? Because there was also an army there. But they didn't have an army. They did, but it was it was un, it was not fortuitous, and they also had a second army of Gauls coming to like help them fight the Romans. So they were just going to try and wait them out. So when Julius Caesar heard this, he built another wall <laughs> behind his army. So there was. It's, I, I'm going to do a visual thing, which is great for a podcast. Of course. There was the castle with their wall. Then out from that, Julius Caesar built a wall to attack the castle. And then on the other side of his army, he built another wall. So it was like a big donut of walls surrounding this castle that they built so they could both besiege this army and fight against the army coming to relieve them. And it worked out pretty well. It was touch and go. And it was like, there was a lot of daring. And this is where Mark Anthony kind of got in, kind of got famous and became like Caesar's buddy. Before and he married Jennifer Lopez. Before he married Jennifer Lopez. And it was just, this is where he got famous. And it was like, it's kind of, kind of a cool story that we learned about him. Uh, after that, as kind of a show of force, he uh, was the first Roman general to cross the Rhine into Germany with an army. Um, he did it by, even though they thought it was impossible to build a bridge big enough to cross 
this. Uh, he built a bridge across in 10 days. It is considered one of the like ancient military engineering marvels that he managed to do this. Marched his army across. They stomped around. They burned down some villages. Uh, the Germanic tribes just ran away because, no, we're not going to deal with this. And then he marched back across and burned down the bridge. as basically a show of force, like, I can build this bridge and come over and kick your asses whenever I want to. So this it's kind of like, I can bring you in. I brought you into this world. I can take you out yeah, of this it. Yeah, was, this was an absolute show of force. And, however... Like he the, in this process, even though it was not officially annexed, he essentially annexed all of France. Mm-hmm. It was he went from uh, west from the Rhine all the way to the Atlantic and all the way north to the English Channel was under Roman control, and it was so much under Roman control when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and started that entire like you know civil war that he's so famous for. So what is for. the Rubicon? It's a it's basically an arbitrary border of his territory. Okay, that he was not allowed to bring troops from his territory into Rome, and he and he brought troops past that. It's like, I hear Rubicon, and it sounds like some kind of 80s video game. Rubicon. It also sounds like a type of, like, SUV. (laughs) So, yeah, that was, he completely subjugated them. They were paying taxes, they were giving tributes, they were providing food and troops and cavalry to him. However, um, according to Plutarch, he, in this process, he killed roughly one million Gauls. Mm-hmm. enslaved another million mm-hmm. and this is not including all of the other ones that died of the resulting famine disease and just strife and unrest that resulted from this so to put that in perspective that is roughly one-fifth of gaul's population was gone and it was fairly brutally too there was one small uprising in which after they surrendered julius caesar had both hands of every person who brought up arms against him chopped off Ooh. yeah this was Brutal, even by Roman standards. The Senate was not happy with him. That's some Troilus and Cressida shit right yeah. there. Oh, yeah, he was... Or am I thinking of the other one? That's Troilus and Cressida, right? That's, uh, uh, it might have been Troilus and Cressida. Titus Andronicus? That's the other one I'm thinking of. It might, well, I mean, it's they're both Romans, and man, Romans did not fuck around. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was uh, definitely... Some historians argue that it wasn't a genocide, but I'm fairly certain that killing one-fifth of the population and just to quell, just to basically shut them up preemptively so they don't become a threat to you, it might be a genocide. I guess it depends on how you define genocide, like what your motivation is, and if it's like a specific group of people as opposed to just a specific country of people. But yeah, this was definitely a sub- specific culture of people. But yeah, it was... Yeah, here we go. 300 tribes were subjugated and 800 different villages were destroyed. So after he subjugated Gaul, he actually, this was mostly because he wanted to go up and like mess around in England. Because the Romans knew England existed. They thought it was a land of immense riches where there was just gold and treasure was just out on the ground. They thought it might have been an entire continent. And they just like, they didn't know what was up there. So kind of like the bullshit we told people to get them to come to America. Yeah, they thought like, oh, England, it's wonderful. So he actually invaded England twice. The first time he went there, he didn't have very good boats and he didn't bring a lot of troops. And all of his cavalry had to turn back because it got stormy and their boats were bad. <laughs> so they get there. They, he shows up on the cliffs of Dover and he just sees a bunch of like guys in chariots and like an army up there watching him. And that follows his boats along the coast. And eventually they have to fight on the beach to get on to land there. They build a small camp, but, you know, the weather turns bad and they lose some more boats. So he decides just to turn around and come home. Then the next year he comes with even more people in better boats, even though some of them do get destroyed in a storm. And he fights the English and it's a big deal. And eventually he decides, oh, I don't have time for this. I have to turn around and go home again because I don't want to spend all winter on this island. So they turn around again and basically he cut a deal. It's like, all right, fine. You're just you're loyal to Rome now. 
and you're not going to attack these tribes. And it's like, they're like, cool, fine. And nothing really happened with that. And it was just lip service. It was really just a, hey, I was the first Roman general to go to England too. So it was more just glory for Caesar. Uh And it was just, you know, dick measuring. That's Mm -hmm. all it was. And they really, the Romans wouldn't return to England in any type of force for over a hundred years. So he just kind of went there, went there, killed the locals, bragged about it, came home. Just a normal Tuesday. Yeah. And of course, you know, through this process, because he was taking so many slaves and just stealing everything from everybody and then gathering taxes, Julius Caesar became one of the richest figures in Rome, one of the most renowned generals, one of the most popular figures. And this naturally did not go very well with his political rivals. And you probably know the rest of the story of him, you know, killing all of them and causing a big war and becoming the first emperor. And he had his own reality show, Keeping Up with the Caesarians. Yep. Yeah, he does sound kind of, you know, Kardashian-like to me. While we're talking about Julius Caesar, we'll talk about the play. Okay. Uh, it's, again, we, as we said earlier, it's accurate-ish. Um, he fudged some of the timelines. Mm-hmm. He actually, when he was attacked, he was not attacked on the Senate. He was attacked in a in front of an amphitheater. And while he fought back, he wasn't just killed. He actually managed to kill one of his attackers with a stylus. They had iPads back then? Yes. He basically stabbed a guy to death with a pencil while they were killing yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. He was stabbed 23 times. And as far as we can tell, he actually didn't have any last words. Mm-hmm. But if he did, they were not at two, Brute. No, I think they'd be like, ah, I'm being stabbed. Help me for the stabbing is not comfortable. Uh, one historian said his last words were, Kaisun Teknon, which was said to Brutus, which was, and you, my child. Which is the same thing, basically, as yeah. at two, Brute. At two, Brute. It just sounds Because they were, like, best friends. Yeah. it's like That and, part's true. Yeah, they were best friends. It, like, it definitely was would have been crushing to him to see his best friend killing him. Now, is it true that... Brutus was kind of dumb, like they make him in the play. No. No? He was not. He was Brutus was complicated because he definitely kind of aligned against Caesar originally, but Caesar's big rival, Pompey, um, also ordered Brutus's father to be killed. Mm-hmm. So Brutus could not stand to be in the same room as him and could barely bring himself to speak to him, even though he was a senator. Mm-hmm. And it was, so Brutus was complicated. Yeah. But he was not, he was not a big dum-dum. Mark Anthony was the big dum-dum. <laughs> now, is it Anthony or Antony? He goes, oh, Mark Anthony. Anthony? Oh my I god. I feel like there wasn't a th sound back then. Okay, Mark Anthony. I don't know. Yeah, it was Anthony and Cleopatra. I keep, I just, it's the stupid pop singer. It's it's messed me up, man. Yeah, he's in your head. He is, I don't even know what his songs are. Me neither. Wow, we're bad people. Like, I could name John Cicada songs before I could name a Mark Anthony song, and John Cicada was not part of our growing up like Mark Anthony, Anthony was. Yeah. So yeah, and again, before people get too mad about Shakespeare fictionalizing this historical event. He did the best he could based on what Plutarch had, and he just spiced it up because, you know, it's a play. It has to be entertaining. Now, out of curiosity, and I, because it's been a while since I've read the play, how much, you said they messed with the timeline. How much time did the play take place over? I don't know. I didn't go that in depth to it. Just like, but yeah, they shortened it. They shortened it. Because that actually uh, feeds into what I'm going to be talking about today. Ooh, fascinating. So are you... Re- <laughs> you sound sarcastic. Ooh, fascinating. fascinating. Can't wait for your stupid oh, part. Oh, good. Oh, great. I have to listen to her talk. Ugh. So are you ready for some questions? I am. So, will the fact that the month of July is named after Julius Caesar be on the test? I didn't even know that. Yeah. He he named July after himself. So I'd imagine not. Uh, Will the fact that he wasn't born via C-section be on the test? No, they like to keep up their legends. Will the fact that he crucified a bunch of pirates be on the test? 
Nope. Uh, well, the fact that he probably enslaved one million Gauls beyond the test. Yeah, that'll be there. And, well, the fact that he flexed on early Germany with some <laughs> bridges beyond the test. I sure hope so. That's amazing. It was, it was just like... It was just to be, it was like, look how awesome I am. And, oh, a lot of the stuff is based on what Julius Caesar wrote about what he did. So he it's, kept, it's, I kind of doubt he's a very reliable narrator. He's reliable enough, but a lot of it does bring lots of glory to Julius Caesar. Yeah. And he went on and on about this bridge. He was super excited about his bridge. going to be the most terrific bridge ever. Huge. Huge. He wanted to fuck that bridge. Ugh. Yeah. That was Julius Caesar. Okay, so the Mark Anthony stuff reminded me of what we learned earlier this week. What we what? So earlier this week, we were just kind of sitting around, and we had—I don't think we'd spoken in like two hours at this point. And then Aust, and then I had mentioned earlier that I saw in crowd scenes and TV shows, I start using mannequins <laughs> uh, in the background. Like, if there's a picture from Glee, where if you look in the back corner, not only are they mannequins, but they're still dressed from whatever the previous show was they did. So like, they're in pilgrim costumes. <laughs> Which somehow led Austin a rabbit hole, and all the, out of the blue, he says, "Did you know that Joey Fatone was on crutches when they did Dirty Pop, and so it's a stand-in in the music video for most of the dancing." So now you know that they use really terrifying mannequins in TV shows, and that Joey Fatone does very little of his own dancing in the Dirty Pop video. If you watch the video, you can tell, and it makes me wonder if that's why the video is just a little blurry. Also, it's like the the times where you can very clearly see it's Joey Fatone. He's either sitting down or he's just doing arm movements. Yeah, it's like a very big close up of his face while his arms move because apparently it was bad. Like it had he had stitches and staples and I don't know what he did to himself because they said it was during rehearsal. I'm like he so he must have fallen on something or. But apparently he was also like me. You've heard me do this. He was very stubborn and insisted on doing some of the dancing himself. So. But yeah, so go back, and then that fell into a two-hour-long viewing of 90s pop music It was basically, we were at the mercy of the YouTube algorithm. It was amazing. Yeah, it's like, weird, it went from like, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Britney Spears, Fat Boy Slim, then back to Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney. Now, Austin, though, what did you finally admit? NSYNC is better than the Backstreet Boys. And all other 90s boy bands by extension. Yeah. Oh, God. I'd never seen the Backstreet Boys or the NSYNC music videos. Yeah, Backstreet Boys were not great. Yeah, their music's a lot of fun, and all of them can sing. But from day one, NSYNC just had it, like, really tightly together, and they had the best choreography. Also, what was up with that werewolf? Just <laughs> do it like... That werewolf- Nothing but it's like, can do they think that werewolves can only travel via flips and backflips and somersaults? There's even one scene where one of the other Backstreet Boys is doing this, like, solo moment, and then Brian Luttrell is backflipping in the background, like, like, the, like what I want Ben Schwartz to be doing in every single scene, just, like, meandering through the background doing Ben Schwartz things. You know, I think if we win the lottery, we're not going to actually do anything or buy stuff with it. We're just going to hire Ben Schwartz to be in the background of whatever we're doing. <laughs> think we could afford that if we win the lottery we could afford that it's like ben schwartz you're following us around for a week what am i doing it's like you're just in the background cool 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 first why (laughs) second i love this (laughs) (laughs) i love him if you have not watched middle ditch and schwartz watch it if you have not watched space force watch it austin said space force is the closest thing he's seen to west wing in a very long time but it's a comedy yes it was like there's like moments of like 
triumph and like humanity at its best and then um you see like someone with like space force rhinestone across their butt yeah it's a it's a it's a confusing watch i recommend it all right so you ready for my topic i am ready for your topic i am so excited to be talking about this today when i was a teacher my favorite thing to teach was theater history i loved teaching shakespeare but i really loved teaching greek and roman theater greek and roman theater if i wanted to get into any kind of real depth, I'd be talking for days and days and days and days. So today I'm giving you the most basic possible overview of the Festival of Dionysus and the origins of comedy and tragedy. Okay. My resources, Wikipedia, The Advocate, University of Saskatchewan, Encyclopedia Britannica, Ancient.eu, Collins Dictionary, WritingHelp.com, Medium, and then of course, I took several courses over this in college. I taught it for several years. So some of my source stuff doesn't come directly from any source that I can remember. But I trust my college theater history theater professor implicitly. May he rest in peace. And so like this man, I loved him. I loved him. He taught us about the myth of like Tantalus and how it's like being really high and wanting Doritos, but being too high to get out of your chair and the Doritos are just out of reach. And then he did a demonstration of it. Now, this guy, he would sometimes teach, and this is not a raked classroom. We're all on the same floor level. From a lawn chair that was down on the floor. And he would, like, do this this demonstration of trying to reach for his Doritos and was, like, yelling, Doritos! I need my Doritos! I loved him. (laughs) His class was super hard, though. Like, there were tests, like, quizzes every class. You had to read a play between every class. It was hard. Ugh. I loved his classes. Reading. So it's been a while since I talked about the ancient Greeks, and I'm so excited to bring them back because we we talk about the Romans a little more often because they were terrible and therefore they get a little more attention. The Romans come up like a couple of times in this, but they don't do anything important in this and they just stole everything. So Festival of Dionysus was this major festival in ancient Greece, in Athens. It's where we get the entire concept of modern Western theater from. Everything that theater is would not exist were it not for the Festival of Dionysus. Western theater. Eastern theater is a completely separate thing that I am sadly underversed in. So Dionysus was the god of a lot of things, as many of them were. He was the god of the grape harvest, of orchards and fruit, of vegetation, of theater, of festivity, of winemaking, of insanity, of ritual madness, of religious ecstasy, and of course, fertility. So basically... Everything that happens at a high school production of Rent. Yes. And I feel like they had a lot of gods of fertility. Yeah. This guy, I feel like they're using fertility kind of loosely because it was more like he was the god of sex. So basically he was like, I think they're like using a euphemism for like textbooks. Like he's the god of fertility. It's like, no, he was the god of fucking. Pretty much. Yes. Um, I saw a play and I wish I could remember what play it was, but they described him as the god of wine and whoopee, <laughs> which is exactly accurate. Um, not to say the festivals for him were not in the hopes of increasing fertility among their people, but they did use Dionysus as an excuse to have orgies. So, and orgies don't tend to be about the baby making. I mean, it's like, do you really need excuses to have an orgy? I mean, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. I I guess you do need Um, a reason. Well, not in ancient Greek orgies. Not as much anyway. What? Oh, that's coming up. It's like, I guess they didn't have Google calendars to like follow adherently, so. Oh yeah, Uh, kids, if you're out there, this section gets a little bit into the rated R section, so parental guidance is very much suggested. Yeah, she's been making lots of lewd hand gestures. (laughs) (laughs) I say as my hands are crossed right now. (laughs) 
Now, this is an interesting one that I had never heard. According to The Advocate, he was also the god of intersex and transgender people. Huh. Um, I didn't dig too much into that beyond that. I like the concept. And also, by a lot of accounts, Dionysus had a wealth of male lovers. Things we never learned in school. Yes, we learned about Dionysus. We even learned about him being the god of wine and fertility and the god of partying. He was described as the god of partying. Never once did we learn about his male lovers or the possibility that he is the god of trans and intersex people. I mean, we we would never learn that in school. <laughs> we never even, those, they weren't even mentioned in school. Uh, he was later called Bacchus by the Romans because they stole him like they steal everything else. They're like, your culture is stupid. You can't practice your culture anymore. And then they steal your culture and make it terrible. Uh, This is, of course, where the word Bacchanal comes from. Bacchanal meaning a party with lots of alcohol and an orgy. Orgy mentioned number two from me today. Oh, it's like, okay, um, I think it's appropriate. We're going to have the drinking game this episode. Every time she says the word orgy, you take a drink. I can't imagine. I don't think it's coming up that much more, so. Well, every time I say orgy. (laughs) You just start shouting it. Orgy! <laughs> so, yeah, it's just weird to me that they never once mentioned this in school, though. Because they did mention, even in high school, that the Greeks were relatively chill about same-sex relationships. And they even emphasized a lot that they were okay with pedophilia. But they didn't mention this. Yes. Also, pedophilia is not okay, no matter what Shane Dawson says. Oh, God. Yeah, another thing that you did to, like, make my... I had never heard of Shane Dawson... And now I've heard too much about Shane Dawson. So Dionysus had a few other names as well, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going Dionysus. Since Dionysus was the god of partying, it only seems right that the way he was celebrated was through giant parties. So while other gods might have had more solemn affairs when it came to Dionysus, it was just plain fucking debauchery. Ritualized debauchery, but debauchery. There were actually two. We never learned about rural Dionysia, which uh, we did learn about city Dionysia, but not rural. Rural Dionysia was held in a rural area. What? I found a few different references to where it was held, and but I do know it was held in a few different places. Uh, it was likely celebrating the vine cultivation. It started with a parade called a Pompe, which was led by the Phallophori carrying Phalloi. Now, what does that sound like to you? Something that would be a nightmare to hear Barbara Walters say. It is women carrying giant, giant penis statues. Oh. Now, if you want a drinking game, anytime the word penis comes up might be a good one. Penis or phallus. Because Dionysus and penises go hand in hand. (laughs) Yes, I was going to say it, then I stopped myself, and then... I couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. There were also canaphorae, which were young, virtuous girls, meaning virgins, carrying baskets that had some of the harvest in it, maybe a sacrificial knife that was going to be used for a sacrifice later. The obiliophorae, and okay, I don't speak Greek, I'm probably pronouncing all this wrong, who carried long loaves of bread, like long enough that you needed two people to carry it, like a, you know, one of those six inch subs. Oh my god, like they had party subs? Yeah, okay, yes. this is sounding like, they, yeah, this is, they're definitely having a good party here. The Sacaphori, who carried other offerings, the Hydriophori, who carried water, and the Ascaphori, who carried the wine. And I just went through all that. They aren't important in the grand scheme of things, except for the Phalliophori. <laughs> but they do, sh- they are in the other festival as well. 
After the Pompey, there was dancing and singing competition, choruses, which I'll talk more in depth about, and possibly some dramatic performances, most likely those that had been produced at City Dionysia in, pre- in previous years. So basically revival shows. They didn't write shows specifically for the rural ones. So it's basically like, you know, Hamilton is on Broadway for a while, then eventually a roadshow comes out to Kansas City. Yes. Uh, rural Dionysia was held in several different towns and on different days. So theoretically, you could go to many of them which was especially good for their uh, traveling theater trips, which they did have. But then there's the big one. This is the one that you learned about in school if you learned anything about Greek theater, which means if you read Oedipus, you heard about this. This is City Dionysia. This is where we truly get the ideas of comedy and tragedy and satire from, is City Dionysia. It's typically what we're referring to when we talk about the festival of Dionysus. Dionysus, as a god, was introduced to the Athenians under the tyrannical rule of Pisistratus in 6th century BCE. A statue of Dionysus was brought to Athens, and the Athenians said, no, fuck that, we're not worshipping this guy, he's not one of our gods. So Dionysus, the god, did not care for that, so he sent a plague upon them. What kind of plague do you imagine Dionysus would send? Penis boils? Yes. I was right?! Yeah, um, it was a plague that affected only the male genitalia, kind of like what happened to Xander on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. His penis got diseases from the Shumash tribe. Mm -hmm. So the Athenians decided they disliked penis boils more than they disliked the idea of worshipping Dionysus, (laughs) so they accepted Dionysus as one of their gods. And this is why people carried the phalloi. During the festivals, the giant penises being like, look, we understand what's important to you, Dionysus. We get it. Penises. Penises. This festival happened around the vernal equinox and lasted a week. Now, this was a big fucking deal. Everybody who could physically get there went. Not just the Athenians, but from the surrounding villages. If you were in a couple of days journey, you were expected to go. To the point where all the businesses, unless they were essential to the actual festival, were closed. And if you couldn't afford to go, the government helped pay for you to attend. What? Like, we think we take Christmas seriously around here. No, the entire fucking world shut down for this, basically. I mean, if Christmas had an, or- an orgy in, a, like, a play, I wouldn't want to see my family at it. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I like. I think I like our spell. I'm not sure where you're going with this. I'm not sure either. I, my brain started, and then I realized, oh, wow, if Christmas was an orgy. It's like, no, no, that would be really bad. It'd also be really weird to have an orgy in a holiday that worships the, a baby. Oh, gross. <laughs> Especially a baby that was born from a virgin. Why were you suggesting Christmas orgies? I wasn't. That was all you. All I said was I'm, we take Christmas seriously. I'm pretty sure you suggested Christmas orgies. No. The eponymous archons of Athens were in charge of the festival. This basically means that they held a public office with eponymous referring to the year in which they held office. They selected a committee of two leaders and ten community members to organize everything. On the first day, they would hold the Pompey or procession, which I already mentioned who's involved with that, in which the attendees marched to the theater of Dionysus, carrying the wooden statue of Dionysus, as well as phalloi made of wood or bronze, some of them up on poles, so, and one of them at least was it was so massive, it had to be in a cart that was wheeled. <laughs> I have never seen, nor have I looked for images of these, but there must be something that remains because we still have remnants of so many other things. We still have some plays that were written from this time. There has to be existing giant penises from the Festival of Dionysus. Oh, man. It's, if not, um, we should get an archaeology grant. Yeah. 
And then, of course, in the procession, they also had bulls who were going to be slaughtered, sacrificed, uh, in order to keep things moving. In the procession, they had the Kuragai, or Kuragis, who were the chorus leaders. They wore expensive, ornate clo- clothing and would lead competitive dithyrams after the procession. Dithyrams are hymns that are sung in worship of the god Dionysus, and there's dancing, and it's a whole thing. This is all that theater was for a very long time. Wait, wait, wait. So they had riff-offs, just like in no, these Pitch are hi- Perfect? These are highly ritualized and very highly rehearsed. Oh, okay. So they would have a few different groups of them. They would have competitions for them. This is what theater originally was. Oh, um, so it's more Other like- than, um, unless we're talking about tribal theater, which is a whole other thing. But this is the initial Western theater. These choruses would go up there and they would tell stories through song and dance as a unified group. And it was a full chorus and that they didn't really have people doing solos. It was one group acting as one. They also would bring in some musicians to play and compete, poets to play and compete. And the chorus members were often wealthy citizens who they were paid, but they also bought their way in. Oh, like community theater. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> After the, uh, oh, and they were all men and boys. There were no women on stage. And that is true throughout the rest of Greek theater. I'm pretty sure it's true through Roman theater. We know it's true through Shakespearean theater. Women being allowed to be on stage is actually incredibly recent. And even in when you get into the 1900s, women who were in the theater were considered whores. Wow. Like literally, if you were an actress, you were also thought to be a prostitute. Yay. So this is where theater starts to come in more. The festival would involve three kinds of theater once we move past the section of just having choruses, which were comedy, satyr plays, and tragedy. So after the dithyrams and feasts, the partying would begin and there was a second Pompey called a comodia, which means song of the comos. They're typically just called comos. You'll typically hear, if you hear about them at all, you will not learn about the comos in high school. This is not something that will be covered, even though it is the origin of comedy. You will learn the origin of comedy is old comedy. Ask them where old comedy came from. Things don't pop out of nowhere. Somebody doesn't wake up one morning and think, I'm going to write something that's funny. I mean, that's what I do every morning. Ask them about the comos. K-O-M-O-S. They will either not know what you're talking about or change the subject. It's a lot like Mardi Gras in that people wore masks and costumes and the sense of having your identity stripped away, like all of your ambitions. And people went through the streets singing, dancing, drinking. And if you asked my college theater professor, having sex with whoever was near them. So yeah, Mardi Gras. Yeah. The giant phalluses were, of course, involved as well. Were they just decorative or... Did not bother to research that. I mean, they're the ones that were too big to be anything but. But, (laughs) oh, shut up. Uh, However, there were smaller ones. Oh, God. Um, They, these, this part of the festival also involved the Ascrologica, Ascrologia, which was ritual, verbal, and physical abuse of individuals. (laughs) They had a roast. Yeah, no, that's actually more what it was. It was largely slapstick in nature. The goal was, it wasn't like flagellations and abuse abuse, although it did, of course, sometimes go too far. It was usually roasting and like slapstick, like, oh, I'm gonna punch you in the face now. That kind of stuff. Also, slapsticks are real things. Like there are actual objects called slapsticks that were from like the vaudeville era. era. They are sticks that when you hit somebody with them, you don't have to use any force and it makes a... 
sound because <laughs> the stick is actually has about a half an inch to an inch of space down the middle. So the back end of the stick hits the front end when you hit somebody with it. Neat. So they actually aren't hurt. It just sounds like they are. It's very cool. Um, so obviously, if you see a movie like This is the End, the traditional Comos may not be so, so, seem so different. There isn't really a through line to anything. It's just a lot of penises and a lot of drinking and maybe, and there's some supernatural stuff happening and that's it. So Seth Rogen is really just the modern day, like, celebrant of Dionysus, I guess. Kind of, yeah. I talk about him actually a little bit. Seth Rogen? He comes up in a minute. Oh my god. Um, So it was not organized like we know it today. Comos did eventually lead to the creation of comedy. A lot of the elements were used, particularly the -the over-the-top costumes and the masks. And the male characters, like I said, all actors were male, but they would play male or female characters. And remember, there was a largely binary society at the time. They would have giant leather (sighs) strap-ons to show that they were males. (laughs) Now, the penises were actually very rarely the butt of the jokes in this. They were just there. However, Lysistrata, which is a great play, is an exception. Lysistrata is when the women of the town go on a sex strike to stop the Peloponnesian War. Peloponnesian. Yeah, Pel- no, I was just double checking at it, right? Peloponnesian War. Assuming, correctly, that the only thing men actually really want in life is sex. <laughs> so the penises actually did become the joke in that because of things like blue balls <laughs> existing and like uncontrollable erections and all this ridiculousness. And that play is actually also where likely where the first kind of is that a banana in your pocket joke started. (laughs) I've actually worked on this play. It is something else. You will never see it as a high schooler. I mean, unless you go out of your way too, I guess. Uh, And as things got more organized, the choruses in comedy were often dressed as animals or something else not human. um, And they were usually referenced in the play's titles like Aristophanes plays wasps, birds, or frogs. Old comedy, as this is called, the organized version, uh, generally involved just insane buffoonery, political satire, and commentary on other issues of the day. They had stock characters, made fun of people in power, involved heroes and villains, and ended with a wedding. That is actually a really important thing because comedy was that for hundreds of years. If you think about a Shakespeare comedy, they always end with a wedding. Yeah. Yeah. That is still old comedy. New comedy, um, new comedy is more about average people. So he's Shakespeare was new comedy, but new comedy still ended with a wedding as a holdover from the tradition of old comedy. But there was about real people while old comedy was heroes and villains and supernatural stuff. Again, kind of going back to Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen still does a lot of old comedy kind of tropes in a lot of ways. A little, like he's kind of straddling the line between old and new comedy. Because sometimes there is like this clear hero villain thing. Sometimes there's not. And then rom-coms are in most ways just plain old, old comedy. Except fewer giant leather strap-ons. Fewer, not none. Not none. But if you think about a traditional rom-com, there is a clear hero. There is a clear villain. So you've got your good guy stock character, your bad guy stock character. You've got your damsel in distress stock character. You've got the wise fool stock character. And it always ends with a wedding. Oh my god, it does. Yeah. Or something similar to a wedding. The couple gets together in the end, basically. The hero always gets the girl. That is old comedy to a T. Old comedy was the kind they saw at the Festival of Dionysus. Aristophanes is the most well-known comedy playwright of the time, but it's because his plays have survived. He actually didn't win the most competitions. 
He got first once and second a few times. Seder plays then. So we've got comedy, which comes from komos, which I've just explained all what it is. Seder plays, which is where we get the word satire from. They were even more body, had some similarities to burlesque. They were much more brazen in how sexual, drunken, and generally ridiculous the shows were. These were performed not as part of the comedy festival, but part of the tragedy festival. It was like a palate cleanser? Yes. Okay. Uh, They were there to give you this sensation of catharsis, because unlike modern tragedies, which when you see them, there's those lighthearted moments interspersed throughout, that's catharsis. It gives you a a moment to breathe. Greek tragedies don't tend to have those. So at the end of each tragedy, they would have a satyr play to give you a reintroduction to the real world. They were often actually written by the same playwright as the tragedy was. Not always, but often. These were not competitive. The satyr plays were just there for the fun of it. Tragedy, of course, is what you will learn the most about in school. We talked about choruses and their dithyrams. That was what theater was for a long time. They would tell their stories, sing the praises as a unified group, often indistinguishable from one another. Then along came 534 BCE and a dude named Thespis. Thespis was a playwright, and he wanted to have an individual character who was usually a god who kind of would tell the story with the chorus showing some kind of worship or the chorus telling the audience how they should be feeling or explaining the god's story. And he also made himself into that lead character. So he wrote the play and cast himself as the only character in the play. So we had the first director. (laughs) Yeah, we got a first of everything. Um, Actually, director is... With the exception of technologically based things, director is the most recent addition to the theater. Huh. Uh, prior to that, it was stage managers who directed the shows as well. So that's why when you watch uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, the leader of the theater company is the stage manager and not the director. <laughs> so it's believed that the single, oh, Thespis, that's where we get the word thespian from. Oh. Uh, He was the first true actor of Western theater. For a good while after that, it was one actor and a chorus. Then Aeschylus came along, introduced a second actor, which made for conflict. You could finally have conflict in your plays. Then it was changed to three actors by Sophocles so that the characters could be more human and identifiable and the plot could be more complex. Three characters are... Um, And then ultimately it became more than three characters and was just left as three actors who played every single character in the shows. It's like, if you've seen or are aware of Oedipus, there are more than three characters in that show, but they still kept the three-actor thing going. I could go into all the structural parts of the theater that made this possible, but that's a visual medium, and so I'm not going to do that to you. The important thing to know for this is that the actors all wore masks, and there was a place that they could walk behind and change to a different mask. And they would come back out and be like, hello, I am this new character. And the uh, everybody was wearing the masks. That includes the chorus. But they didn't change their masks. They were on stage the whole time. When If there was ever a moment where actors had to be off stage almost completely, chorus would jump in. The chorus would also, after each scene, kind of explain what had just happened. They served kind of as the cue cards for the audience, too. Like, you know, you see those things where they hold up the cue card that says laugh, and the audience must laugh. That's the role that they played. They told they represented the audience. They told them how to feel. They made sure they understood the story, things like that. So something really cool. The Theater of Dionysus is still there, and it was huge. It was originally made out of wood, but... When you've got tens of thousands of people, that's not a great idea. So that collapsed and they rebuilt it with stone into the side of the Acropolis Hill. One of the things that was important to the Greeks was not to destroy what the gods made. So a lot of their stuff was built directly into nature 
uh, so that you could still see the broader picture of what the gods made. Then the Romans came in and were like, oh, cool, we like your amphitheater idea, but it doesn't glorify us enough, so we're going to build a coliseum and make it so you can't see anything the gods made, because the Romans are terrible. The point is, though, that the Theater of Dionysus seated around 17,000 people outdoors prior to amplification technologies. And yet you could still hear the actors, even in the back corner. The actors wore larger-than-life masks and shoes that made them taller, so you could see the characters' faces and you could see the actors' bodies better. There was a theory for a while that the masks had some kind of, like, bullhorn attached to them, but that's been debunked. That's not true. The actors just had to project. They had to have good breath support and speak loudly. We still see opera singers do this today. They don't need a microphone system to sing to 20,000 people which is also it bugs me when a theater is like oh no we have to stop the show because the sound system went down or because this one actor's mic stopped working no bitch should be able to project if you're gonna be on stage you need to be able to project like even my theater that i worked in at the school we didn't have a a working sound system if a sixth grader can do it a middle-aged trained actor should be able to do it so the masks are one of my favorite aspects of this whole thing seriously look up pictures of greek theater masks they are fucking amazing they were made out of lightweight materials like linens but we still have the molds they were made from which is why we know what they look like the masks were incredibly elaborate like super detailed and you can tell at a glance who the character was what they were thinking what their social status was whether they were male or female if they had a certain job you could tell all of this just by glancing at the mask they are amazing and these are the days before 3d printers and mass production so they all had to be carved by hand look these up they are so cool and there's one that looks like donald trump (laughs) tragic plays had to go through a rigorous screening process with the top three chosen by the archon for the competition the chorus was was paid by the three kuragoi the three main people that were funding all of this About 15 chorus members were usually involved, and the state itself paid the writer and the lead actors. And yet we defund theater now. Like, the Greeks understood why this was important. And then during the Great Depression, when I talked about the Federal Theater Project, we were like, oh, wait, people need the arts. And now we're seeing people turn to Netflix and all this with being stuck at home all the time. But we're still defunding the arts? Really? It's like, again, next time you're watching any show, just watch the credits. See all those people? Those are people who have careers in the arts. Mm -hmm. Every one of them. Yeah, and not every one of them started off as a theater person. A lot of them are computer people and writers. And also right now, all of them, almost all of them are going unpaid because they literally are legally unable to work during the pandemic. So be nice to your local theater and film people. The plays started with prologues in which the characters introduced the story, its background, then the parados, which was more or less the three acts of the play. Between each act, the chorus would intervene with the stasima, explaining or commenting on the story. They inter- they did intervene at throughout the story as well, but these were kind of like act breaks, but instead of having an intermission where you could go pee, the chorus would be like, to sum up what just happened and how you should feel about it, that was what they were doing. The chorus represented the people. I, I talked about that already. The tragedy ends with the exodus. They had unity of time, place, and action, which is why I was asking you about how long Julius Caesar takes place over. The tragedy, um, that led into the 
what would later be formalized as the Aristotelian unities, which meant that the play, a play should not take place over more than 24 hours. It should only take place in one location and it should have only one plot with few to no subplots. Now, none of these, not none, not all of these plays struck, stuck to those strictly. They could be more than 24 hour period, but not much more. They could have more than one location, but there was one primary location. They did rarely have subplots. The plays usually had a protagonist who was a person of importance and good moral standing, but who comes to a sad ending through Hamartia. Hamartia is commonly defined as a fatal flaw, but I prefer my theater history professor's definition of fatal mistake. Everyone has a fatal flaw. Every single human being has a vice or a proclivity or a personality trait that could lead to their demise. If we all gave in to that, there'd be no such thing as tragedy. We would all just be a bunch of idiots who died. So he defined it instead as fatal mistake, giving the actual choice to give in to your fatal flaw. The common example used is Othello. Othello is a jealous person, which makes the story to happen, makes the story happen. But he was always jealous and he had lived up until that point without killing his wife. Then he killed his wife, without which the rest of the play couldn't have happened. That was the choice, not the flaw. Dumbledore, his flaw was arrogance. His entire fucking life, this guy is an arrogant douchebag. But the choices he made is what caused all of this. Oh. Oh, I'm doing something fatal. I probably should have told Harry all that stuff. Oh, well. So yeah, the story doesn't happen because of the flaw. It happens because of the choice. That said, kids, if Hamartia comes up on your test, answer fatal flaw and just play the goddamn game. The ancient Greeks believed that things were rooted in fate. So the plays often involved the hero trying to defy the will of the gods. Again, a choice not a flaw. That leads to catastrophe, and that is the official word they use, is catastrophe. The most famous Greek tragedy trilogy is the Oedipus trilogy. I'm sure you read at least Oedipus Rex in school. Yes. Or maybe Antigone. Sometimes they read Antigone. Yeah, um, I, th- I think I read both of those. In which uh, Oedipus's biological father goes to an oracle who speaks kind of like the god's will and discovers that his son will eventually kill him and marry his wife, uh, the boy's mother. So he sends the son away, and the son ultimately ends up being adopted by a family in another town. He finds out about this thing, and he's like, I love my parents, and so I'm leaving. On the way, he meets a man, kills that man, turned out to be the biological father. He goes to the town, meets this woman, marries her, has four kids with her, finds out later that this is all come to be. She, uh, Yocasta, her name is spelled J-O-C-A-S-T-A, it is not pronounced Jocasta. Yocasta. Yocasta. I've also heard Iacasta or Wicasta. Yocasta is the most common one you will hear. Um, I've also heard Oedipus pronounced Oedipus. And it's actually an interesting one because O-U is pronounced with a W. Uh, like if you think of the name Weezer from Steel Magnolias, it's O-U-I-S-E-R. So Oedipus, you'll usually hear Oedipus, but you'll hear a couple of other variations as well. Or Oedipus, as I heard once. That sounds like when I was reading Casco Montiato for the first time, and I kept pronouncing it Montelodialo. <laughs> uh, this was after my dad died. I was doing all the homework on my own, so I had oh. no one to actually like, read the stuff out loud to me. I was about to make fun of my sister and how she thought uh, Penelope was pronounced Penelope. That's a common one, yeah. And she um, fought us on it. No, it's Penelope. So the story ends with Yocasta killing herself and Oedipus taking one of her brooches and blinding himself and bad shit excuse me, happens to the kids, but that goes into the next two plays, so I'm not going to get into those. 
And this is actually a great moment for the chorus, who asks him what superhuman power drove him to commit the act of blinding himself, to which he responds, the hand that struck my eyes was mine, mine alone, no one else, I did it all myself, which is admitting his defiance of the gods caused all of this and that he should have just followed what the gods wanted. Now, what's interesting here to me is that at the end of the day, it almost seems more like it was his father's choice that caused all of this and his father is the problem, not him. But because if it's if there is fate, this would have happened whether or not Oedipus had known about it. And so that makes the whole predetermination versus free will thing a very confusing thing, especially when you see people who are in religions that believe in both. I don't think you can really have both and have it make a whole lot of sense. These plays also brought about the idea of the deus ex machina, which literally means God from the machine. This is an intervention from the gods, and they were often lowered on some kind of crane. So literally, God comes down from a machine. They didn't always intervene positively, but it's now looked at commonly as a positive intervention that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Looking at you, Harry Potter. I also wanted to mention quickly that the deaths, uh, the... Characters don't have to die for it to be a tragedy. Their life just has to be ruined. But when there are deaths, the deaths happen offstage. Somebody will come in and be like, oh, Yocasta is dead. Because the Greeks were like, we don't want people to see death on stage. They, that's too much. While the Romans were like, yeah, kill everybody and do it for real. So that's a big difference between the two. Back to the overarching idea. Tragedy comes from the word tragedia, which literally translates into goat song, goat poem, or goat ode. Goat like that. What? Mm hmm Why? Yeah. So they were watched over the period of three days, and a secret jury chose the winner. Technically, the sponsor, the person who had paid for the chorus and all that, won, but the playwright won, and eventually, actually, the lead actors also won. So, goat poem, because the prize was a goat. Is this why you got into acting, is because you love goats? I got into acting because my mom thought I was an overdramatic child and needed to be able to, tr- to use it effectively, as opposed to bothering her, I'm sure. <laughs> I would force her fit friends to watch me do stuff. I was the most obnoxious kid. I'm absolutely positive of it. It's like, at least I wasn't mean, but I was like, look at me. Look what this cartwheel I can do. Listen to this song I can sing. God, I would have hated me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, tragedy means goat poem because the prize was a goat. So today, whenever you're watching Hotel Rwanda and you're thinking this is such a tragedy and you really can't bring yourself out of it because there is no catharsis in Hotel Rwanda... At the end of it, remind yourself that tragedy means goat poem, and you might feel a little bit better. Okay. Don't take away from the seriousness of the story, but... The Academy Awards would be so much better if they brought back the host, but they replaced all of the statues with goats. Yes. Yes. They should do that. Can, can you just imagine, you like, you know... And everybody has to be dressed as a satyr. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine, you know, Meryl Streep trying to give her speech while a goat is attempting to eat her dress (laughs) we have pictures from our wedding of goats like eating my dress it's the best we had goats at our wedding we did be jealous we got married at a petting zoo um all right you ready for some questions i was born ready for questions unlike Macduff, who was not a woman born it's like i'm defying the gods with how ready i am for these questions theater heavy day i love it it is lay on Macduff. will the fact that comedy comes from a massive drunken orgy be on the test depends on the grade (laughs) Not until at least college. Not until college. Will the fact that Dionysus had sexual relationships with men be on the test? Oh, no. We, oh, can, no. we can't let people know about that. That's scandalous. I mean, it's like, he was also arguably fictional. It depends. There are actually still people who practice this religion. Yeah. Uh, it's very small, but there are. Will comedy, tragedy, and satyr plays be on the test? Yes, yes, no. We learned about satyr plays. I didn't. Will Hamartia be on the test? 
Yes. Will the correct definition or the traditional definition be on the traditional test? Traditional definition. Mm-hmm. This is history. We have to be traditional. And will goat poem be on the test? God, I hope so. Yeah, but they never mentioned that in high school when we were learning about tragedy. I might have gotten into theater if I had known there was a chance of winning a goat. That's the thing is, why do we leave out so many things that are actually going to draw kids in? Like... Goats! Even like little mentions that won't take away from the rest of the time you have to teach. Come on, guys. Goats, goats, goats! (laughs) Oh, also we didn't... We stopped mentioning orgies, didn't we? I told you penis was the better drinking game. Oh, man. Well, maybe just go back and re-listen to it and we talk say penis or orgy. Or penis orgy. Or phalloi, phallus, uh, any of those words, really. Man, it's like, I'm kind of proud of us. We didn't, like, go into any, like, weird, like, it's like, it's like these giant dicks everywhere on sticks. Yeah. We didn't use any slang. We used actual terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dicks on sticks, though. Dicks on sticks. I don't know what that'd be a good name for, but it's gonna, it's gotta be a good name for something. It's like, it's like dicks on sticks, cocks on rocks. <laughs> this is turning into the worst Dr. Seuss book ever. <laughs> I can't think of another one. I'm, I, I my brain broke. <laughs> well. Songs of dongs. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, where can people find us? Oh, well, in the gutter this episode. <laughs> but no, uh, well, they can find us uh, on Twitter at on the test pod, Instagram at on the test pod. Uh, they can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod. And of course, they can always go to our website on the test pod.com. We are available to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Luminary, Podcast Republic. If you're listening to us, you're able to listen to us. Tell your friends about us. Have them give us a rating and a review. If you have not given us a rating and a review, please do so as well. We would love to have your feedback. But if you're going to be mean, why are you here? Yeah. You've already listened to us for, I'm assuming, seven hours at this point. Yeah. Why are you here? Go home. Go, go, to, home. go listen to go something home. else. Go go listen to, I don't know, Joe Rogan. Oh, no. Yeah. Don't listen to him anymore. Yeah. Don't. Anymore. God. Yeah. I don't think that we have a whole lot of Joe Rogan us crossover. I don't know. There's maybe, probably some. I'm sure there is. I mean, it, there are worse ones out there, I guess. Like the ones that are com- le- legit full on alt-right. Yeah. But... He's like, Joe Rogan, he's an interesting guy. I don't want to listen to him. He's kind of an idiot. And he does not know how to interview or do anything. He's just wildly popular. Yeah, and, and he makes excuses for rape. And I'm not cool with that. Yeah. It's not really rape if you, the rapist, don't think it's rape. No, that's no. not how this works. No. Oh, we got off topic again. We got off topic. That's what we do best. That's what we yeah. do best. That's why you guys are here. That's why you are listening to us and thinking, my friends Maddie and Austin are talking to me right now, which I get, I get. I sometimes start telling a story and then realize I'm not talking about people I've ever met. I'm talking about podcasts I listen to and like, my friend. And I'm like, nope, never met them. It's like, oh my gosh, Austin, you would love, they were talking about this. It's like, who are you talking about? What? It's like, oh, it's a podcast I listen to. It's like, oh. (laughs) So yeah, please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies if you hate us. And I guess Um, on that note, class class dismissed. dismissed.